What are the politics of citation in academia? Why is it that certain fields of knowledge tend to cite mostly work produced within its field than other fields which are more open to citing work produced in other fields? About this and other important topics is this conversation with Maria Elena Cepeda in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have today with us Maria Elena Cepeda. Maria Elena is a professor of Latina Latino Studies and faculty affiliate of American Studies, Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies, all at Williams College. She did her bachelor's at Kenyon College, majoring in modern languages and literatures, Spanish and Italian. And then her graduate work was at the University of Michigan, her master's in Spanish and her PhD also in Spanish. Um, she is the author of one monograph, Musical Imagination, U.S. Colombian Identity and the Latin Music Boom, and has another book in progress, Never a Local, Migration, Gender, Media, Madness. She also is co-editor of four edited volumes and special issues, including the highly acclaimed The Rutledge Handbook of Latina Latino, Media are co-edited with Dolores Inés Casillas. In addition to that, she has over 20 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters in some of the leading venues and edited collections in the field. We are thrilled to have Maria Elena Cepeda with us today. Welcome to El Café Latinx. Gracias, gracias. Our pleasure. So, Maria Elena, ¿cómo comenzó todo? How did it all begin? That is, how was the journey? You know, the start of uh, the journey that led you to become a professor? Well, I started writing, I think I started wanting, I realized that I wanted to be a writer when I was six. When I was about eight, so I started very early. Um, I um, Books were everything to me when I was a little girl. Um, but when I was eight, my mother said to me, Maria Elena, algún día te veo trabajando en comunicaciones. And I said, okay, I was like, whatever, you know, and I just went about my merry way. And then when I was about, I think I was maybe 15 or 16, they had a program at my, at my school where we were allowed to go follow anybody we wanted for a day to see how they did their job. And I followed a communications professor at the local college. And I went to the radio station that he ran and I recorded a show. And that was, I think that's where it started. <laughs> it 
um, that's, I just saw that as a world that was possible, not necessarily for me. I didn't, graduate school was kind of an accident for me. Um, I was an undergraduate at Kenyon College. I went there on a full scholarship and it was like landing on Mars, going to this college in rural Ohio. And I, I got there and one of the first professors I encountered was a very new professor who was a young Puerto Rican woman. And that she became my mentor. And when I was a senior, I think it was early in my senior year, she pulled me aside and she said, you know, you're very intelligent. Have you ever thought about going to graduate school? And I said, graduate school? What's graduate school? I didn't know any of those things. And nobody had ever really pulled me aside and told me that I was intelligent. That really, it was, it was a, that was a life-changing moment that somebody saw, she saw something in me that I wasn't aware of. So I ended up applying to the University of Michigan again, just because I knew of the school and I didn't really even know how to apply. I literally wrote my application in ballpoint pen. This is what happens when you are the child of immigrants and nobody in your family has gone to school in the United States and you're just kind of on your own. It's kind of like part of the immigrant kid tax, right? That you pay. And I found out later, and I think this is, as I understand it, maybe I'm incorrect, but as I understood it, I actually, the decision to let me in, in, in the Spanish department at the University of Michigan, wasn't I wasn't necessarily brought in with open arms. I think it was kind of like they were, it wasn't, I was, they weren't sure whether or not to admit me. And I think somebody, one of the professors spoke up on my behalf and the professor who spoke up on my behalf became my mentor. Another Puerto Rican woman who saw what I was capable of and supported me. So my family is from Barranquilla, Colombia. Um, my family is costeña, you know, caribeña. And so I come from a long line of, I now see myself as part of this like growing line of like, Latina feminist, Caribeña professors, and I'm very aware of that, of that history and of that weight, but I don't see it as a burden. I see it as sort of a possibility. What can I do for other people because of where I've been? What do I know? How can I make it easier for somebody else, right? The next person, so I make a point when I see somebody who I think is just excellent, I pull them aside and I say, you know, you're talented, you're smart, you can do this. It's often women of color. And I get the sense that I many times I am the first person who says that to them. So I take that role very seriously. Absolutely. Now, how was your experience in graduate school in that sense? <laughs> graduate school was talk about like extreme it was it was hell but it was also wonderful right the spanish department is a difficult place to be if you're doing latinx studies i was the first person to come out of the spanish department at the university of michigan who did latinx studies who didn't work on literature um, who did interdisciplinary work and that was a real struggle I was constantly being told that I could not do what I wanted to do, except for Francis Aparicio um, and a few other folks like Margarita de la Vega Hurtado, um, just other folks who, who saw, you know, well, this is something that can be done. And so in some senses, I was like a guinea pig. I went through and, and I'm so glad to see that since I left, 
you know, I graduated in 2003. Um, other people, I'm thinking of Arcelia Gutierrez, um, if any of you familiar with her wonderful work, right, is also somebody else coming out of Michigan, out of that Spanish department with a media studies specialization, a Latinx studies specialization. So there, we, we are there, it is possible, but I'm not gonna say it's not a struggle. Um, I, I encountered a lot of obstacles in graduate school from professors, from other students who just, um, I don't know, I'm invested in doing work or discussing topics that maybe aren't so popular sometimes or that aren't as typical. And sometimes um, you encounter resistance when you do that, when you're doing something new, when you're doing something different. And that definitely was the case at Michigan. But on the other hand, it was also an amazing time to be there, a really vibrant graduate school and professorial intellectual community. Um, I've, I made an intellectual community there that has stayed with me. Um, and I'm really honored to, you know, to call some of my, you know, peers from Michigan colleagues. Excellent. And since you mentioned this about, you know, choosing topics, perhaps topics that are not so mainstream or popular, yeah. how do you choose yours or do you choose your topics? Some they choose me. Right? They choose me, but I just do what I love. If I'm, in, I'm like, look, I'm going to have to listen to this podcast, you know, for hundreds of hours, or I'm going to have to watch this, you know, music video 50 times or whatever. So you better love it. Right. Um, I always do what I love, what excites me, what motivates me. I never have given a lot of consideration to what is quote unquote marketable or that's going to get me a book contract. That's been my philosophy from the very beginning. Even in graduate school, everybody was saying to me, why are you studying Colombians? Who cares about Colombians? Who cares, you know, about popular music? Why are you doing this? You know, um, music video, nobody studies music video anymore, this or that. And I just don't care. You know, I have to do what makes me happy because academia is hard enough as it is. Why make it harder by doing something that doesn't motivate you or move you? And then how do you build community? around the work that makes you happy. The work that makes you happy, you are unique, right? So how do you foster connections about what is unique about you? I think it's like you have to be willing to sort of, I don't know, I love going to people's work and I see like the sincerity and sort of like connection that they have to it. And I often learn just from that, um, you know, how do you foster that community? That's a great question. I think it's, I don't think like to have community, you necessarily have to be studying the same thing, for example, but it's almost like it's a bit, if you're approaching your work with a similar philosophy that, that, you know, you're approaching the practices and sort of, of, of research and of academia in a particular way, that's what draws me to people and makes me want to sort of like connect with them through my work. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't, I really don't, in terms of community, I don't, at this point, you know, um, you know, mid-career, I guess, I think I'm mid-career, that's what you would call it, mid, mid, mid to late mid-career. Um, I just feel like, again, academia is so hard. Why, like, surround myself by like with people and with projects and energy 
that don't, that don't feed me, right? That aren't meaningful to me. You know, there's a lot of um, posturing and sort of like strategy and academia. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, and I'm just not interested in that. I'm not, and I know, I know I pay the price for it sometimes. I do, um, but I'm happier. I'm happier that way. That's all that matters in the end. Yeah, it? that is all that matters in the end, right? That I believe in the work that I'm doing and that I feel like it has some deeper meaning behind, beyond sort of just providing people with facts and figures, right? That maybe in some senses, well, at least I know, for example, disability studies, what disability studies has done for me personally and Latinx studies and gender studies have done for me personally is that they've all, they've been intellectual sort of, intellectual avenues of intellectual inquiry that have provided me with a critical vocabulary to understand my place in the world, my past, my present, and maybe even my future, right? So I think if I can do that for somebody, if somebody watched, you know, um, my presentation on um, loca, loca and locex, um, epistemologies like if they watch that and that helps them understand their life and their situation a little bit better or gives them some kind of empowering language to use and understand themselves with well then I'm thrilled with that because that is that is that can be earth like that can be a um, paradigm shifting for people I think absolutely and thinking about this issue of empowerment you said a couple of times already that academia is, is hard why do you think that is the case, number one? Number two, how could we make it better? <laughs> I, think one, I think one of the reasons why it's just so cutthroat um, and so difficult, more difficult than it needs to be, and I think it's becoming more difficult because we're becoming just ever more sort of like submerged and acculturated in this neoliberal paradigm. Right. Everything is a business. Um, everything can be quantified. Everything, all the productivity can be sort of calculated and calibrated and measured. And, and I think we really need to move away from that. I just see how even that language and that understand, because language to me is sort of like a, a window onto how you understand the world. Um, and I noticed that that language has really seeped into students' lives as well. It's gone all, I mean, why, this is one of my um, things that I notice is that like students, at least at Williams, right? Um, and you see this with graduate students all over. Um, I understand it more in graduate students, but I'm even seeing it at the undergraduate level where students will have signatures in their email that has their name, their class year, their majors, what clubs. And I'm like, why are you professionalizing yourself so prematurely? I didn't do that as a graduate student. I understand things are different now. But I'm like, why do we want to go down that road? But maybe that's easy for me to say because I have a tenured job. I don't know. You know, so yeah, I think like moving, being a, an awareness of that mindset of that sort of like neoliberal business model that we're approaching education with an awareness of that and how it's just everywhere in the air. It's just part of the cellular sort of like existence right now of academia. It's frightening, but the more we're aware of that and, and what it looks like in our everyday lives, how it manifests itself. I think that's, that's important. 
So you see that even at Williams, which is a liberal arts college, uh, an elite liberal arts college with a lot of resources and also in an isolated, more like a bucolic type of environment, you see that happening there as well. Absolutely. It is. It is. Def- I've been seeing it. I've noticed it sort of this trend towards professionalization of students at all levels. I've seen it sort of take root and accelerate in the last 10 years or so. So, and that, and I guess I'm one of the things, you know, I, when I talked earlier today about temporality and I didn't get to do it as much as I wanted to, because I'm obsessed with temporality, but, and that's another issue, right? I I think media, like digital media and just studying transnationalism and globalization has really just made me much more sensitive to how, how we're dealing with time right? How time is, how, how we're understanding time at the particular moment. And um, I'm really fascinated by the concept of what gets called Alison Kafer's concept of crip, crip um, time. as sort of like, you know, a re- crip time refers to the ways in which people in the disabled community and dis- disability studies scholars, sort of like the ways in which time sort of gets flexed and manipulated kind of like by disabled people because you know you're living in a world in which maybe it's like for me I'm somebody um because of some of my some of my health issues I can't work for more than an hour and a half generally at a time without starting to like really feel poorly a lot of graduate students sit for 10 hours at a time and write when you can't do that when you can't sort of like live time professionally and personally sort of by mainstream or like dominant standards you have to bend time and make it work for you that's crip time and i think there's something akin to that right goes on um that, that i was talking about earlier in the Locatora podcast i think something akin to that goes on but i'm not sure if it's exactly the same thing but anyway so Time is another thing that really interests me. I talk to students a lot about it and how how this these notions of productivity and worth in academia really um, alter our sense of time. What does it mean to just sort of relax and do nothing? Can you allow yourself to do nothing? Right? No, we don't. And so all of these things. So talking about these like fundamental things like time and speed, um, all of that with people um, in in connection to sort of like a broader discussion or consideration of neoliberalism in academia is something that interests me a lot right now. And that I think is really important in a way to sort of like contest what, um, to contest sort of some of, some of, of, kind of contest the part of academia that, that doesn't work for most of us, but we all participate in it anyways. I don't know who the system works for. I really don't. Well, I know who it works for, but <laughs> it doesn't work for me. You know, it doesn't work for most of us. Um, so, yeah. So, so let me build on that and go back to um, a comment that you made about your experience in graduate school, which was that, I mean, you were the first, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm bad at remembering things exactly, but paraphrasing the concept that, um, you are the first in your program to look at, you know, music videos as a topic of research, and that um, within the Spanish department it was a, 
perhaps not the best appreciation of what Latinx studies could bring to the table. Um, so another way in which sort of the neoliberal academy has unfolded is by becoming, making us ever more specialized and making the yeah. specialties um, not only talk less to the others, but appreciate less what the yes. others might offer. So, so what have you learned in your experience of crossing intellectual domains, specialties, uh, you know, terrains of inquiry, right? Um, that's number one. Number two, within that, what does Latinx studies have to offer to people who care about media, language, communication, humanities? Mm. Yeah. Um... Okay, what is what what have I learned about crossing boundaries? First of all, I don't know any other way to work. That's the only way I've ever worked. I always, I mean, I'm bipolar. <laughs> I have bipolar. I always tell people I have a bipolar brain. I don't like, I don't, meaning that I don't, not, a, not that I think like in very, very sort of like stark dogmatic terms. That's not what I mean. What I mean is just that my brain is very messy and I make a lot of connections um, across, I mean, I read very widely. Um, I always have, and that's basically the only way I can work. And I and I recount. I encountered a lot of resistance to that. Um, I started doing that sort of interdisciplinary work when I was an undergraduate. Um, I did an honors thesis on Argentine tango music and Italian immigration to Argentina. So yeah, and it, it was a fascinating project um, and like pulp novels and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't think, I can't think of any other way to work and why would you wanna work any other way? Because there's, I mean, there's never any one sort of perspective on a question or a problem. And it seems to me like one perspective is never adequate. I like to think about, I like to think about a variety of perspectives and think about how they speak to each other um, yeah, and I can't think in straight lines, quite literally. I mean, this is like something, and I, not being, um, not being neurotypical has like been a challenge, has been a real challenge. I also have ADHD, so I have issues like following instructions and like reading, you know, um, absorbing certain kinds of material. So I guess just naturally I'm interdisciplinary in some ways. And I, I and like how, why I can't think of working any other way. This is a long, I keep on, you know, saying that, but it's hard for me to think in other terms. Um, and I guess I'm just a very naturally curious person. I want to know what people are saying in other fields, what's going on. Um, what does Latina Latino studies have to, what does Latinx studies have to offer media? Um, I'm not gonna give you an answer like, well, 62% of Latinxes listen to podcasts. You know, I'm not going to, because I'm tired. I understand we need to do the stats, but I'm kind of tired on relying on demographics as a justification for studying this research. I'm really tired of that. I don't think it's a good enough. I mean, I can see why people do it, but you know, it's really difficult at this point to find either in the popular press or in academic writing to find articles um, that, that talk about Latinxes and media that don't go into all of those stats, right? Um, 
again, it's sort of like Latinxs and media count because they can be counted, because they can be quantified, right? So what does Latinx studies bring to media studies? That's a great question. That is an odd, yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, it's sort of like, it's like the people, it's like the community. It, it adds the community into the media and, a very, and it's a specificity that it lends, right? To, to the study of media. Um, and I think it's, we should all be studying Latinx media, quite frankly, because it's kind of like, it's inherently transnational, right? It's, and I wish in the United States that we didn't frame the study of Latinx media as something that was sort of marginal in its own way, as opposed to central when sort of the flows and themes of Latinx media, I mean, I just feel like Latinx media really exemplifies broader global flows and, and um, dynamics. So it's very useful and important for us in the United States to be studying it, right? Um, yeah, it just is a microcosm of larger issues. And so that's one of the arguments I always make for studying Latinx media, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, there's a specificity there that's really important, but then also some general sort of trends that you can pick out of the study of Latinx media. Excellent. And let me let me continue sort of building in this direction. You mentioned about your family origins in Barranquilla, in the Caribe. Um, so what's the in, in your work and in your thinking, how do you connect Latin America, in particular, sort of the sort of the northern part of South America, right, and the connections mm -hmm. to the Caribe, um, to Latinx USA? How do you think about and you know conceptualize those flows? How can you not connect them is the question like for me i always describe myself like okay so i describe myself as a scholar like who has three three limbs like if i have four limbs i have three of them in the united states with the u.s latinx population and then the other remaining limb is in latin america and there is no way i'm going to get around that and i think it's very important it's sort of like because of the nature, the flows and the movement, right? The dynamics, the way where things are being produced versus where they're being aired, all of that. I mean, the United States and Latin, like Latinx media, when you say Latinx media, I always think of Latin America in that category, right? It's sort of like they're both, they're both of a piece, the United States Latinx media and then Latin American media. I mean, they're not always the same thing, they're overlapping, but they're just. Yeah, it's just, in, they're inextricably bound. So I, I like, again, I'll start off like saying, how could you not think of them together? Okay, and then on that note then, if, if we think about the study of media and communication from a multidisciplinary perspective, um, not just communication and media studies, not just Spanish, but also political science, sociology, mm -hmm. probably I would leave anthropology for this a little bit on the side, but. Uh, with the exception of anthropology, most of these other disciplines tend to take a global north-centric approach. Yes. Right? 
and a little bit of a view from nowhere. It's not only global north centric, but that is not even really thematized or interrogated. So what has been your intellectual and professional experience in, in trying to position the inquiry um, in a different way, right? Moving it to the you know, Latinx community in the US and its connections to Latin America. You know, it's funny, Latin Americanists are kind of, I feel like a fish out of water with Latin Americanists sometimes. Um, it's weird because my work gets received in Colombia in particular ways. Um, and then when I engage with academics there, it's always a really interesting experience, right? But it's always that, there's always that experience um, and that tension and, and that anxiety, I think, that comes when somebody who is from the diaspora and intellectual from the diaspora encounters a Latin American, encounters, right? Um, um, appear in Latin America, right? There's always that tension. Oh, do I speak Spanish well enough? Am I legitimate? You know, all of those things. So I think that's been part of my experience, sort of like reaching out and, and sort of when I emphasize that more Latin Americanist um, facet of my work. But I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I love it. But I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to um, give up that and just say, oh, I'm only going to talk about the United States. I don't think it's realistic. I focus on the, I, I write about all the Latinx communities, but I focus on the Colombian community. And quite frankly, you cannot write about Colombians and Colombian media without talking about Latin America, even if you want to focus mainly on the United States. It's just when. It's, I think it's still the Latinx community that has, it's one of the, if it doesn't have the highest portion, proportion of foreign born people, Colombians I think are way up there. I haven't seen the latest figures, but many Colombians are born in Colombia and then come to the United States. And so there's still a really strong transnational tie there. So it's kind of, I feel like I'm not doing people justice, the community justice, if I only talk about the United States. That's not people's reality. No, it's not your reality. Even if you're born and live in the United States your entire life like me, there are always two frames of reference. Okay, and, and with that in mind, um, where do you see, and with all these perspectives, where do you see the field of media and communication studies today in general? And, and where do you wish the field could pay more attention to? You know, I'm really tired of the politics of citation in media and communication studies. I, and, but it's something I've written about, right? So I'm, I'm not like, this has been something I've been talking about for years, but, um, you know, this politics in which like media studies scholars don't read Latinx media studies. Um, Latinx feminist media studies scholars don't get read by feminist media studies scholars because, right? So it's like, People aren't taught, but I'm reading the feminist media studies scholars and the media studies scholars, right? So it's kind of like the flow is going only in one direction often. Um, and that frustrates me. It frustrates me um, a great deal. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed sort of like in the foundational training that people get, right? Why is ethnic media? Why is media from Latin America? and the global south, why does it get such short shrift when people are trained unless they become specialists? 
I think there should be basic literacy. We're talking about Latin America. This is like how geographically, politically, economically, how can we not be like sort of literate, you know, as media studies scholars in that, in that geographic region to some basic extent, right? And also U.S. Latinx, you know, U.S. Latinos, right? And Latinx media also needs to be covered um, in the same way in the United States. But yeah, that politics of citation is something that troubles me a great deal, and I see it reproduced all of the time. So if I gave you a magic wand and, and told you that you had one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? Cluster hires. <laughs> I don't like cluster hires. You know, I just like... I just feel like people, you know, because we, we get so specialized and we, we're often considered as an extra, right? Like a media person is great. An extra is a me, an ethnic media person, right? We're not central. We're not like sort of foundational. Um, and I wish, it, I wish it weren't that way, right? I wish it weren't that way. Um, and that people didn't like, I'm one of the only media people. I think there's, there's another woman in Africana studies at Williams a wonderful colleague, um, Vanata Ford, who does who does very who does work that's very parallel to mine. But other than that, you know, we don't have intellectual interlocutors, and you get you know you get in these places, and you're the only one. It's very small. It's difficult. So I think cluster hires would be a good place to start, and also graduate school training, like revisiting some of that. If I could have an extra wish, you can certainly have an extra wish. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Elena, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very, very much for your time, sharing your journey, sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, I want to thank also our listeners for staying with us through the end and invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you again. Thank you. Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.